We are grateful, our Father, for the hope of this passage. We are grateful, our Father, for the provision of the Spirit which makes this passage hopeful. For apart from the Spirit of God, we would have no ability to walk in a manner that pleases you. We would have no ability to produce the fruit that comes from the Spirit apart from Him. But with Him, we can produce these things that are pleasing to you. And so, Father, as we look again at this passage in Romans that is familiar to us, might we find similar kinds of encouragement and hope and confidence, confidence of our position with you, hope for an eternal transformation, and even a willingness to follow after you in obedience, even as you have equipped us to do. And so, Father, would you... This morning, transform us by the word that we are about to hear. We pray in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen. Several years ago, author Brett McKay wrote on his popular blog site, The Art of Manliness, that he had learned the skill of picking locks. After learning the basic principles about how locks work and how picks work inside of the locks and and given the tools to try... He picked his first lock within two minutes. He says this about this new skill of his. Some of you might be thinking, Brett, why should I learn to pick a lock if I don't plan on breaking into people's homes? Great question. There are a few good reasons why law-abiding citizens should learn to pick a lock. Lock picking opens your eyes to the illusion of security. We all lock our doors to keep our loved ones safe at night and to secure our possessions during the day. After I picked my first lock, within two minutes of learning how to do it, I realized that locks don't really do much except provide the illusion of security. Locks make us feel safe, but if someone really wanted to get into your house, they could easily pick the lock on your front door. And if they didn't know how to do that, they could find another way in. You can't just rely on a lock to keep you and your family safe. You need to utilize other tools and tactics and create multiple layers of security. It seems to me that many believers may feel the same way about their spiritual condition before God, that that their security before God is an illusion and not a reality. They know that God says that if they are in Christ, they are safe in Him, and they they are trusting Christ as their Savior, but they, they act at times as if they are unsafe, and that God is really still angry with them and with their sin, and, and He's just waiting for the time when, when they'll make some massive error and massive mistake and fall into sin, and, and God will gleefully pour out His wrath against them. This chapter that we're examining in Romans, Romans chapter 8, deals with that very issue. It has been said that Romans chapter 8 is about the working of the Spirit of God, and, and in very many ways it is. it is. It is the Spirit of God that is mentioned by name 19 times in this chapter. But, but it's not just the Spirit of God that's mentioned. The, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is also mentioned by name 13 times in this chapter, and God the Father is also mentioned 16 times by name in this chapter. So this isn't a chapter just about the working of the Spirit of God. This is a chapter about the Trinitarian Godhead 
working in us the, the fact of our justification to produce sanctification. And in particular, it is the Spirit of God working in conjunction with the Son and the Father to remind us of our security in Christ when we belong to Him. We not only are secure, but we can have a sense of that security through assurance. So this chapter is particularly well-loved because it teaches the security that a believer has in Christ and how he can live confidently and assuredly in that security. In fact, we, we find this theme just running all throughout this chapter. I won't read all the verses, but just consider a few of the verses that particularly emphasize the security of the believer in Jesus Christ. Verse 11, Romans 8. If the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So if you have Christ, you will, based on the promise of God, have life. Verse 14. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. If you have the Spirit, the Spirit is living in you, filling you, guiding you, directing you, you are then His Son. You have assurance. Verse 15, For you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So it's not just that maybe one day you will be adopted as God's Son, but no, if you're in Christ, you already have adoption as God's Son. Verse 16, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And verse 17, And if children, heirs also. Not only am I the Son of God, but I am an heir of God. Not only an heir of God, but He says also in verse 17, Fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. This is... Our position. This is what we have. This is a security. This is a guarantee. Some might eject. Some might say, well, I'm not so sure. Some might question these things. So Paul says this, beginning in verse 31 of chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And if we are in Christ Jesus, if, if we have trusted in Christ as our Savior, if we belong to Him, if we've been adopted as God's Son through Jesus Christ, then God is for us. And He says, if God is for us, then who can stand against God and, by extension, against us? Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Well, of course He will. He will give us all things. Verse 33, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who can, who can stand against those who have been elected by God, designed by God, purposed for salvation? Who can keep them from coming into that salvation or staying in that salvation? He says, verse 33, it is God is the one who, is, who justifies. So verse 34, who is the one then who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, who rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Verse 35, culmination, Who then will separate us from the love of Christ? Who can take us out of the love of Christ? Who can who can make us unconnected with Christ? Who can make us ununited with Christ? Who can remove that salvation from us? 
Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. If you are in Christ, you are secure in Christ, kept by Christ for an eternal salvation. So the believer can have assurance that he is secure in Christ. He can experience the peace that comes from knowing that God has saved him and is saving him, is keeping him, and that if he is in Christ, he can never be out of Christ. If he has been wholly connected to Jesus Christ in salvation, if he has been placed in Christ, if he has been taken out of Adam and moved into Christ, he can never be taken out of Christ. And the assurance that Paul builds for us in this chapter begins in the very first four verses of Paul's um, chapter. And it begins with Paul's explanation in these four verses that Christ removes every aspect of condemnation for the believer in Him. These four verses tell us four truths about our position in Christ that make us hopeful for living sanctified and God-honoring lives. These are four truths about our position in Christ that bolster our assurance in Christ. Christ removes every aspect of condemnation for the believer in Him. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And just by way of reminder, let's go back for a moment and look at verse 1 and remind ourselves that in this, in this uh, section, Paul makes the, the basic statement, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. Uh, first of all, consider the fact of the reality that there is no condemnation, the reality of no condemnation. So Paul begins, Romans 8, 1, he says, Therefore, and when he says therefore, he's drawing a conclusion and he's going backwards to something that he said previously. And in verses 24 and 25, which would be the natural thing to go back to, he's still talking about this wrestling that we have with the flesh and, and the fight that we have against sin. So he says in verse 24, I'm still a wretched man. Who will set me free from the body of this death? And while he points to Christ at the beginning of verse 25, the end of verse 25, he still points to this wrestling. On the one hand, with my mind, I'm serving the law of God, so I understand that I've been connected with Christ and I'm being obedient to Him. But at the same time, with my flesh, I'm obeying the law of sin. So there's this tension and it does not naturally flow from that statement that I'm, I'm wrestling still with sin, that he says, therefore, there's no condemnation. We would expect him to say something like, based on those two verses, there is still some condemnation. So, so what is Paul doing? He's going all the way back, actually, to, to the first chapters in this letter. Chapter 1, he has, he has laid out for us the reality that, that those who are with Christ are completely under the wrath of God and the judgment of God. There are men, chapter 1, verse 18, who suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. And, and God has, has given them over in judgment to, to all kinds of sin, and, and that sin itself is His judgment against them. Now, the Jew might respond to that and say, well, it's appropriate that, that the Gentiles are underneath the wrath of God and underneath the condemnation of God, but, but we, are, we are Jews and, and we don't experience that. We don't have that judgment because of our Jewishness, because of the fact we're, we're part of Abraham's physical lineage. That enough is sufficient. And Paul corrects them in chapter 2. He says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, verse 5, 
you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, if you don't obey Christ, if you're not part of Christ, if you're not identified with Christ, it doesn't matter what your physical lineage is, you also are underneath the condemnation of God. So, so unbelievers... Unbelieving Gentiles are underneath the wrath of God. Unbelieving Jews are underneath the wrath of God. And not only has God condemned them, but notice verse 15, speaking about Gentiles, chapter 2, he says, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So not only does God condemn them, but their own consciences condemn them. And so Paul wraps this up in chapter 3 and he says, um, not only are Jews underneath the condemnation, not only are Jews, chapter 2, underneath God's condemnation, not only are Gentiles underneath God's condemnation, chapter 1, but all men, if they are rejectors of Christ, are underneath God's condemnation. We have that classic passage verses 10 through 18, about how he demonstrates how there is no one who is righteous on his own. And then he finishes that and says this in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, watch this, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. The entire world is accountable to God, the entire world must answer to God, and the entire unbelieving world is underneath God's condemnation and God's wrath. He then interjects the middle of chapter 3 through chapter 4 and into chapter 5 about the glories of justification, that God declares righteous those who are unrighteous in themselves when they trust in Christ that the Christ is the ground of our being made and being declared to be righteous. And being declared to be righteous through Christ, he says this in 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have peace with God when we are justified. Anger is removed, wrath is removed, war is removed, and the granting of a particular relationship that we'll see later on in chapter 8, a position of sonship, that is granted to us. So, so we have peace, we have contentment, we have joy, we have reconciliation with Him. That's the positive. And now in, in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, through Jesus Christ, there's not only the positive blessing of what we have, peace with God, but he also says there's the removal of the negative. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So when Paul says therefore, he's looking all the way back, summarizing the entire argument of everything he's made in this book so far. And notice that he says not only therefore there is no condemnation, but he says therefore there is now no condemnation. That is, previously there had been condemnation, but now our circumstances radically are altered. It is good, my friends, for us to remember that at one time we were guilty before God. We may or may not have felt guilty at the time, but because of what Paul says in chapters 1 to 3, whether we felt guilty or not, we were guilty. Now, the world doesn't like to admit that we are guilty. The popular secular advisor, Ann Landers, has said, 
one of the most painful, self-mutilating, time and energy-consuming exercises in the human experience is guilt. Guilt is a pollutant and we don't need any more of it in the world. Another secular counselor, Wayne Dyer, has called guilt, quote, a futile waste of time. Guilt is the most useless of all behaviors. It is by far the greatest waste of emotional energy. Guilt zones must be exterminated, spray cleaned, and sterilized forever. Let's get rid of it. Let's just, let's just do away with all guilt. No one should ever feel any guilt because no one should ever be rendered guilty. Oh, a New York Times writer talks about a friend of his who made a resolution on one occasion. And the resolution was this. He says, no more guilty pleasures. I assumed, the, the writer says, I assumed at first that he meant there would be, that he would no longer indulge in, you know, the usual cultural indulgences. Those books, movies, TV shows, albums, etc., that are unabashedly enjoyable, but that also confer a patina of guilt to the self-conscious cultural consumer, even as he's enjoying them. But I was wrong. My friend didn't mean that at all. What he meant was simpler, and I have since realized more radical. He'd still enjoy all those indulgences, he said. He would just no longer classify them as indulgences. In other words, no more guilty pleasures for him meant all of the pleasure, none of the guilt. Now, the world attempts to do that with guilt, doesn't it? I'm just going to keep on doing and I'm going to reframe it and classify it as something else and say I'm not guilty. The problem is guilt still remains. In a secular journal article entitled The Strange Persistence of Guilt, the author writes this. Those of us living in the developed countries of the West find ourselves in the tightening grip of a paradox, one whose shape and character have so largely eluded our understanding. It is the strange persistence of guilt as a psychological force in modern life. If anything, the word persistence understates the matter. Guilt has not merely lingered. It has grown, even metastasized, into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in the life of the contemporary West. Even as the rich language formerly used to define it has withered and faded from the discourse and the means of containing its effects, let alone obtaining relief from it, have become ever more elusive. We've said no guilt. What's the problem? Everyone feels guilty. This author points to the work of Nietzsche, who proclaimed the death of God and in hopes of, of killing off God. And if you kill God, then you can kill guilt. And that didn't work. He pointed to Freud, who called guilt the most important problem in the development of civilization, who attempted to remove the moral component of guilt by calling it a subjective emotion. So, so guilt is no longer a reality. Um, it's no longer a declaration, but it's simply a subjective emotion. And yet both Nietzsche and Freud failed. And guilt remains. Why? Why does guilt remain in the consciences of so many? Because they are guilty. They are culpable. 
They have been rebellious against God. They have, they have fought against God. They have resisted Him. They have not placed themselves in subjection to Him. They have been angry against Him. They have resisted Him in every way. They are worthy of condemnation because of their guilt. Now notice verse eight, or verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, guilt and condemnation have ceased to exist. The wrath of God has been entirely and eternally removed from against you. Consider, for instance, Hebrews chapter 10 that affirms the same thing. Hebrews 10 Quoting the Old Testament, it says this, This is the covenant that I will make with them, God says, after those days. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. And then he says, And their sons, excuse me, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I will not remember their sins. I will not remember their rebellion. I choose to not focus on, to not think on. I who am omniscient and know all things choose not to remember the sins of those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the believer's security. Wrath and judgment from God are removed by God because of the work of God on the cross. God died on the cross so that we could be saved both to God in fellowship with Him and from God and from His wrath. That's one one reason why the statement by Luther on your outline is so helpful. Satan stands, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, Satan stands consistently in the presence of God, constantly bringing accusations against believers. Have you considered Terry? Have you considered Terry? Have you, have you seen his sin? Have you, have you seen him do this? Have you, have you heard this desire? Have you heard this inappropriate word? Have you heard this and seen this longing for him that doesn't conform to your righteousness? And the father looks at Satan and says, I see on Terry the righteousness of Christ and nothing else. There is, therefore, now no condemnation. And all the accusations that Satan throws against us before the throne of God are futility. And the accuser of the brethren has become overcome and overwhelmed. There is, therefore, now no condemnation. What what does he mean by no condemnation? Just by way of reminder, the word condemnation refers to a pronouncement of guilt. So we are guilty. And then it is the carrying out of judgment against that guilt. So it is the reality of what we are. We are condemned. And then it is the carrying out of that condemnation against us. It is the penalty for our sin. So back in chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is life. Okay, i got a couple of you to move. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Does sin ever produce anything but death? No, never. Sin is always death. Sin is always destructive. But the wages of that sin, that is death, were paid for by Christ and He has removed that debt 
against us. But not only has He removed the penalty of our sin against us, He's also removed the power of sin against us so that we can do things that are righteous before Him. So Paul can say things like he does in chapter 6, verse 12. Therefore, if you are in Christ, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. In other words, you can say no to sin. You're in Christ. Say no to sin. Verse 13, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, you can do something that is righteous. You can do things that are pleasing to God. And so he will say in chapter 7, verse 4, Why have we been saved? We have been saved in order that we might bear fruit for God. Previously, you could never bear fruit for God, but now, he says, because you're in Christ, you can bear fruit for Him. The penalty of sin is removed. But no condemnation also means the power of sin is removed so that you can please God. And who are the recipients of this lack of condemnation, the removal of this condemnation? It is, he says at the end of verse 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not a universal promise. It is an exclusive promise to those who are united in Christ. You must be connected to Christ, baptized in Christ, in fellowship with Christ through Christ's work on the cross. It is only for those. It is not for those who are not connected to Him. But brothers, listen to me. If you are in Christ, Paul is pointing to your security And the fact that you can have assurance. You are secure and you can feel assured of that security. Not on the basis of what you've done, but on the basis of what Christ has done to remove God's condemnation from you. You are, even as we read earlier, unchangeably adopted by Him. You've been brought into His family. You've been connected to His family. And that adoption as His Son cannot be removed. But, but there's a flip side to that also, isn't there? If we say there is now, if Paul says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he could also say it this way, there is now still condemnation for those who are outside Christ Jesus. If you are not in Christ Jesus, if you are apart from Christ, disconnected from Him, unbelieving of Him, unreceiving of Him, if you are outside Him, you still have all of His wrath and all of His judgment and all of His condemnation pointed at you and directed to you, and unless you change, you will receive it. And so there is nothing better that I can say to you if you are outside of Jesus Christ, if you, are, if you do not belong to Him, if you do not trust in Him, if you say, I like religion, okay, but I don't like Jesus Christ then I say to you, you you must repent. You must turn away from your sin. You must turn away from your rebellion. You must point yourself to Jesus Christ. You must trust in Christ alone for your salvation. And friend, if you do that, if you trust that Christ died on the cross for your sin, if you trust that Christ is worth following in faith, if you trust that Christ is sufficient and you are wholly insufficient to pay for the penalty of your sin, then God will save you. And you will be like everyone else that Paul speaks of here in verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But on the authority of the Word of God, I tell you, if you do not believe in Him, you, you must believe. 
And I compel you and even command you to trust in Christ as your Savior. And this is the first uh, reality that Paul points to, the first truth to point to, to um, focus on our assurance in Christ, that is, that there is no condemnation. There's a second point that Paul makes that's given to us in verse 2. There is no condemnation. There's no condemnation because of Christ. There's no condemnation because of Christ. I want you to notice, first of all, how it is that there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation because of what the removal of condemnation did. Notice, first of all, what the removal of condemnation did. Verse 2, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free. No condemnation has freed you from the law of sin and death. The freedom that Paul has in mind here is a freedom from the enslavement to to sin and death. It's it's the same word that he uses in chapter 6 a couple of times in verses 18 and 22. It's the same word that he uses in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom... Galatians 5.1, that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Christ died to give you liberty and freedom. What kind of freedom? A freedom so that you don't engage in sin. He says the same thing in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity of the flesh. So you've been called to be set free from sin. Don't go jumping back into sin as an expression of that freedom. That's not freedom. And notice that Paul says that that freedom has happened. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. It has happened. It is a a completed action you have been emancipated from your slavery to sin. The irrevocable document document liberating you from sin has been sealed with the name and blood of Christ Jesus. You have been set free. The reason that there is no condemnation, verse 1, is that we have been set free. Now, he doesn't mean by this that the believer won't ever sin. We've already seen in Romans chapter 7, yes, we will still sin. But it does mean that sin is not the master and that Christ is the new master. How has that freedom come about? It has come about in the person of Christ Jesus. Now, if you're reading carefully, it's the, this verse is translated this way, For the law of the Spirit of life, my translation says, In Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That little modifying prepositional phrase, in Christ Jesus, is kind of a free floater, if you will. It can be attached to a couple of different things in this verse. In fact, um, you may have a marginal note that says that in Christ Jesus might not be attached to the spirit of life, but that it is attached to has set you free. So we might translate it this way. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. That is... Christ Jesus becomes the means by which we are set free. And a couple of weeks ago, I was contemplating this, thinking about this while I was um, in my dentist chair. And um, being in a dentist chair, this is a, is a good time to contemplate and meditate on Scripture. And so that's what I was doing to try and distract myself that afternoon. And I was thinking about this. Where, where does in Christ Jesus go? And I got to thinking about verse 1. Notice verse 1. He says, there is therefore now 
No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Verse 2, has set you free in Christ. And I think what Paul is doing is he's setting up a parallel. There's a parallel between no condemnation and, and being set free, and both of those happen in Christ Jesus. So I think what Paul's saying here is Christ has become the means by which we have been set free. It is Christ who has accomplished our freedom. It is, it is Christ and His work on the cross that has set us free. And as Jesus has said, if you believe and if you are a son, you are, uh, John chapter 8, you are free indeed. Christ has broken our bonds with sin and set us free. And notice not only what we are, who we are set free by, Jesus Christ, but from what we are set free, he says, has set you free from the law of sin and death. What we were set free from is sin and death. Now, the question is, what kind of law is he talking about? Some have supposed that because of everything else he's been saying about the law and the way he typically uses the word law in the book of Romans, that he's thinking about the Mosaic law. So the Mosaic law brings only sin and death. I don't think that's what he's doing here. I don't think the reference here is to to the Mosaic law that produces sin and death, but he's talking about a different kind of law, the, the law that governs sin and death. And he's using the word similarly to the way he uses the word law in verse 21. So verse 21, it says literally, I find then the law that evil is present in me. And he's speaking not there about a, about a law of evil. And that law of evil, as he talks about in verse 21, is really just a, a force or a compunction or a compelling, a, a motivating or a dictation that, that the law not only establishes itself, but it also motivates and compels and, and pushes people to sin. And I think this is the same way that Paul is using that word in verse 2. He uses it similarly in 7.23 as well. He talks about the law of sin which is in my members. In verse 25, um, I am serving with my flesh the law of sin. So I'm serving with my flesh. When I, when I engage in sin, even as a believer, I'm serving in that moment the, the motivating, compelling power of sin, the authority of sin in my life. And that's what he's talking about here. Christ Jesus has set you free from the motivation, the compunction, the compelling activity of sin and death in your life. You really have been freed from it. So as one commentator says, the last word is not with sin or death. While believers are not sinless, they have real liberation in Christ. You really have been set free. Sin is no longer your authority. Christ is your authority and you are free. Now, now if you're paying attention, you're saying this is chapter 8, verse 22, but I remember chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, and I remember this wrestling with sin. I, in fact, I remember verse 14 that says, I am of the flesh sold under sin. I am still underneath sin even though I'm in Christ. I'm, I'm under sin. And if I am under sin in 7.14, how is it that Paul can say, I am free? Because it sure doesn't feel like I'm free a lot of the time. 
What Paul has done here is not created a contradiction, but he's, he's painted a picture of how we really live. Paul, is, Paul has not given us a photoshopped image. This is, this is reality for how a believer lives in Christ. It's a portrait both of the beauty and the harshness of, his, of, a, of a person's life. These verses address the reality that the believer still wrestles with the illegal squatter that takes up residence in his life called the flesh, and he will still at times blatantly sin. He will still find most, if not even all, of his most godly actions tainted in some way by impure motives and impure desires and imperfections and, and failure to achieve exact perfection before God. And there's a persistent reality of sin. And this is what Paul's been talking about in Galatians chapter 5, right? It's for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, keep standing firm and don't be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Why would he say, don't go back into slavery unless it was possible to go back into slavery? So these, these, these verses, chapter 7, um, reminds us that every single day we still have a wrestling with sin and every single day we are dependent on Christ. Every single day I am reminded that, that I am a sinner that is not saved by myself. I am a sinner that is saved by grace. And in a sense then, sin actually works to my advantage because, not that sin is advantageous, don't misunderstand me, but sin constantly points me to Christ. Sin constantly makes me remember I must go to Christ. I cannot attain on my own. I am dependent on Him entirely for my transformation. But there's also the reality that even while I'm wrestling with sin, I can do the things that are pleasing to Him. So, so Galatians chapter 5 doesn't, doesn't end with this wrestling of the flesh, but where does it end? It ends with the work of the Spirit in our lives, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of those things can be produced in my life. Not, not by my goodwill, but by the working of the Spirit in me. So he says, verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You can walk by the Spirit. You can be pleasing to God. You can be honoring to Him and pleasing to Him. This is not a tantalizing mirage. It will never be attained. This is what the Spirit produces in us, and it is what we see in each other increasingly. And, and, and lest you think Paul's just setting up um, a false dichotomy here, or Paul's setting up um, a, a contradiction, whatever wrestling you feel as a believer is entirely different from what an unbeliever feels. The unbeliever has to fight his sin again, uh, with only the power of the flesh. He can do nothing to fight against his sin except the power of the flesh. And sometimes that fighting against the flesh with, with the flesh, that fighting against sin with the flesh will, will make him feel a little bit moral, a little bit righteous, make him feel like he's making some progress. But the Lord sees past it and the Lord examines his heart and renders him still guilty despite his best efforts. Even though an unbeliever may think himself acceptable to God, God always judges his efforts as infinitely deficient. 
Even if he does good. Even if he teaches his children civility. Even if he disciplines them graciously. Even if he contributes to worthy causes. Even if he serves on the PTA. Even if he never curses. Even if he is faithful to his wife. Even if he helps every elderly lady across the street without complaint. Even if he never honks his horn in anger. Yeah, that's not going to happen. He's still not righteous. Why? Because every attempt to be righteous is an act of rebellion against God. He has said, I don't need God. I don't need Christ. I am sufficient. And it is his attempt to usurp the throne of God, even as it was Satan's attempt to usurp the throne of God when he declared his rebellion against God in heaven shortly after creation. There is nothing that makes him good on his own. He is a God-hater and worthy of God's wrath and full of nothing but rottenness. So Romans 8.2 is not a contradiction of Romans 7.14. It is simply a full picture of everything that we are apart from uh, living by the Spirit. It is a full picture of what we are in Christ still having the Spirit of God but still wrestling with the flesh. If you are in Christ, says Ray Ortland Jr., then all that he can do for a defeated failure is now yours. You are not going to hell anymore. This brief life is all the hell you will ever know. You will never again hear God's holy law thundering its curses against you. The atoning work of Christ on your behalf is complete and you cannot add anything to enhance his triumph. Our holy Lord exchanged places with us sinners. He put us in His place of approval. He put Himself in our place of condemnation. And God accepts that exchange. Your only part is to open your heart and receive the finished cross work of Christ. And when you do, you are justified before God. You are not just brought up from minus to zero to a position of neutrality. You are declared positively righteous in God's assessment of you as righteous as Jesus himself. And that is why you are released from condemnation and enter into peace with God. You have no condemnation. You have freedom from sin. How is it that we have freedom from this sin. Notice as well how we were removed from this condemnation. Beginning of verse 2, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ. It was the Spirit who has come. The Spirit of the law of the Spirit of life has taken the blood of Christ and granted it to us, applied it to us, and regenerated us and given us life. Now here, Paul again uses that little phrase, the law of the spirit of life. What is, what is the law he is talking about? Again, it is, it's the authority, it's the compulsion, it's the compelling activity of the spirit of God. It is the spirit of God who has been given to us, who compels us to follow after Christ and produces His life in us. 
Think, think about how the Spirit of God comes to live within us and how the Spirit of God produces His work and fruit in us. Titus chapter 3 tells us that the Spirit of God saves us through the renewing act of regeneration. So, so the Spirit of God comes to, to reside within us and He takes this dead life that is under condemnation and He brings it to life. And then bringing it to life, Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26 tells us that He replaces our stony heart, rips our stony heart out from us and places in us a heart of flesh that can obey the law of God, a, a heart of flesh that is satisfying to God. And by doing that, He becomes the agent of our sanctification. So He not only places us in Christ, justifying us, but He also becomes the agent of our sanctification. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. And in doing our sanctification, He produces our, His fruit through us, enabling us to fight against sin. That's Galatians chapter 5. And not only does He produce His fruit in us, but He gives us gifting so that we can be pleasing to Him and serve Him and honor Him in particular ways. We'll see that in Romans chapter 12. And all of this is done by the work of the Spirit. It's, it's done by Him. And just a reminder again, this is not what something we do on our own. It's the Spirit's work on our behalf. What's Paul saying? Don't think you don't need the Spirit of God to be justified or sanctified. You do need the Spirit of God. You are dependent on the Spirit of God. And if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of God and have everything you need to be sanctified. And then notice what else He does. He is the Spirit of life. That is, He is the Spirit who contains life. That is, life is in Him and life also originates from Him. So He is the Spirit of of, of life. He has life. He originates life. He gives life and and He is the one who imparts life to us. We, we see the life-giving work of the Spirit in multiple places in Scripture. So, for instance, in Genesis chapter 1, we see the life-giving work of the Spirit in the act of creation. So there was nothing, and there was something, and it was alive. Where did that life come from? It came from the movement of the Spirit in the act of creation to impart life. Not only does He impart physical life, but He also imparts spiritual life. So Jesus, when He meets with Nicodemus and He talks about uh, the regeneration that comes through believing in Him, He says, uh, chapter 3, verse 7 of John's Gospel, Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It takes the Spirit of God to come and make a man alive. Jesus will say something similar in John chapter 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit, He says, who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The Spirit gives life. The Holy Spirit of God imparts life, grants life spiritually in the flesh. You'll never accomplish that on your own. All that the Spirit does and all that He is is in contrast to the death that comes from being an Adam and being under law and being under sin. The law of sin and death always condemn. They never produce life. The sin always only brings death. Sin is never life-giving. It is always life-taking. But the Spirit 
counteracts everything that sin is. The Spirit always comes with life. And the one who is in the Spirit is never condemned and never dead and always living and always alive. And friend, if that is you, if you are in Christ, you are alive. Period. Not just alive today, but maybe dead tomorrow. No, if you are in Christ, you are eternally alive in Him. Someone has well offered a a concise summary of Paul's teaching on the three different laws that he has spoken of. Moses' law, he says, has right but not might. Sin's law has might but no right. The law of the Spirit has both right and might. The one who is in the Spirit has the Spirit and the work that only the Spirit can produce to give you life, to give you freedom, to give you no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This morning we've thought about the guilt of mankind before, before God. John Stott was right when he said, We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our, our attempt will be futile as futile as his was, for there is blood on our hands. There is blood on our hands until the blood of the cross is applied to our hands. And Christ's blood washes our bloody hands clean, removing from us the condemnation of God and setting us free. Because there is no condemnation There is assurance that we are His and we belong to Him and we remain in Him. This, my friends, is the work of our Savior to produce assurance and no condemnation. Our Father, we thank You for the hope of this Word, the hope of this passage, the hope of Christ. For apart from Him we have nothing, but in Him we have everything we need. Because we are in Him, there is therefore now no condemnation. Well, Father, what better words could there be? And not only no condemnation, but there is freedom. Freedom to be set free, to obey You, to delight in You, to follow after You, to be satisfying to You. And, oh, Father... Might we rejoice in that, revel in it, rest in it. Some of us today are still feeling the fact of condemnation, though we have trusted in Christ. Would you make us to experience the assurance that we have in Christ? And might we be set free from guilt that entangles us that no longer has application to us. And Father, might we delight all the more in Christ our Savior who has set us free. We pray these things in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen.